make your way to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2. Colossians 2 and verse 16, a text before us today, the Apostle Paul says, Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, no one judge you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Our Lord, as we come before your word today, we ask for the ministry of the Spirit of God to teach and instruct us. There is much at stake. It would be so easy for this passage to pass through us, to not take root, to not mean much, but we realize that our eternal future hinges on words and instructions such as these. I pray that we would take heart to know that what is before us today is crucial to our eternal salvation and crucial to our sanctification as the followers of Christ. I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior and for those who do, that together we may look into this ancient text, understanding its meaning, sensing its authority, seeing its beauty, and being drawn to Christ in a new way. While there is no truth here that we perhaps have never heard before, I pray that in a fresh and real way we would realize that we are complete in Christ. For those who have come to saving faith, may we sense this and see it afresh. Through Christ I pray. Amen. And as we work to do that, I'd like you to imagine with me that the king of a great realm chooses you as his child, chooses to adopt you. Though once an orphan, you now have full access to the king's status, to the king's riches, and to the king's love. As the king's trusted child, you are commissioned as an ambassador representing the interests of the realm. 
After a challenging year abroad, you return home to the palace anxious to see your family and honestly anxious to relax in the opulence of the king's estate. But as you near the gate, you find something very unique. There's hundreds of people that are crowded around the gate, blocking the way. Over there is a large group of people, some are on the ground, and they're exercising vigorously with someone standing in front of the class yelling at them to exercise harder, counting the reps. And over there is another group. They're they're seated on lawn chairs under a tree, and there's a lecturer with very animated teaching them and instructing them. And you say, what on earth is going on here? An individual who's clearly a leader steps forward and says, we are providing special training here to people so that they can gain entrance, earn entrance into the king's estate. That's what we're doing here, and we would encourage you to join us. You say, well, uh, I, I really don't need that. Uh, if you just let me pass through to the gate, that will be fine. And the leader says, no, you don't understand. The king will not see anyone who is not trained in the protocols we're teaching here. You have to receive this training in order to move to the gate. You say, listen, I don't know who you are. I don't understand what on earth is going on here, but I just need to get through to the gate. The leader responds again, you're not ready. You are not ready to meet the king. I will prepare you through my lectures and exercise programs, but if you approach that gate right now, unprepared, untrained, you will be shot. Now what's the reality in this very imaginary situation, as weird as it is? The reality is that it is insanity for you to join a developmental program, to find your place there in the exercise class, or to go under the tree and listen to the lecture. This is absolute insanity. There's no reason for this whatsoever, but a developmental program seeking to improve your status is just absolute foolishness. Who you are in your relationship with your father is everything. I don't need training, you say to yourself. What I need to do is see my father. And that will be enough. And Christian, in a sense, we are all standing at that gate every day in this world. Every day in this world, there are people who are telling us we're not fit to meet God. We need their program. We need to develop the way that they are instructing us to. There are religious charlatans who press us to join these programs as if our standing and identity in Jesus Christ is not sufficient. It won't stand on its own. You need us. The Colossian believers were enduring, as we have read here this morning, they were enduring such attacks. And the Apostle Paul pleads with them, resist this insanity. He has been developing the theme of Christ's identity and of our new identity in union with Christ through faith in the Gospel. Remember who Jesus is as He's developed it in chapter 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. 
And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the Christ you received. This is the message of who he is. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. You, this world, those who trust him as Savior, are reconciled to him. We move to chapter 2 and verse 6 where he then says on the basis of who Christ is and who you are in him, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, this creator, this sustainer, this head of the church, this one who has laid down his life for you, as you have received him, so walk in him. Live your life in him. Find in him your breath, your source, your strength, your power. Rooted and built up in him established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the message. It's who Christ is and who you are in Him. Here's the trouble. Here's the charlatans. Verse 8 of chapter 2. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. Let's just remember again, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have all power, you have all strength, you have all support in Christ. Fully sufficient, absolutely complete. For, verse 10, you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. There is no power in this universe seen or unseen, that can stand against Christ and you are complete in Him. All the fullness of deity dwells in Him and you have been filled in Him who is the head. Paul says then, united to Christ, you have complete spiritual fullness. Let no one impose upon you a program of spiritual development that is not rooted in your new identity in Christ. To do so is neither sane nor safe. So following hard on 2.8, we have a positive development of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. More will be developed as the book unfolds, but we have this positive section there of who we are in Christ. Now at verse 16 of chapter 2, we consider the negative side. These attacks that have been referenced in 2.8. And Paul makes clear, first of all, and says to us, by way of instruction, let no one disparage your new identity in Jesus Christ. Now this may come through mocking, but what he has here in view is really those who claim to be Christians who are steering you to add to Christ. Let no one dis- disparage your standing in Christ in this way. We'll work this out in these first uh, several verses here. Verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Therefore, if we follow this flow, it's very obvious why that's there. United to Christ, you have complete spiritual fullness. Therefore, based on who you are, who Christ is, as the head of the church, let no one judge you. Let no one disparage your standing in Christ. That's exactly what the false teachers were doing. Like in my 
strange starting illustration here. It's like that teacher coming up and saying, you're not ready. That's what they were saying to the Colossians. You're not ready to enter into the presence of God. Not the way that you are. Not what you know at this point. You're not there yet. You become a Christian. That's nice. We have two. You want to enter heaven. Wonderful. That's our goal as well. Now let me explain what you must do to qualify yourself in order to please God. You really don't have it figured out just yet, but I'll teach you what you must do. It is following these guidelines, food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath. It's not possible for us to know the precise nature of the false teacher's curriculum uh, as they were presenting it to the Colossians. But their doctrine certainly had roots in the old covenant law of God established with Israel. Their teaching seems to have included a syncretistic mix of Jewish and pagan elements. All of that's really not particularly useful to us, other than in the interpretation of the book to some level, but we're not really given the specifics of it, and I don't think we need to take up any time here to try to work out what precisely they were teaching. Anyone reading these words would recognize the connections to the Old Covenant. These food and drink laws, these festivals, these annual festivals, these uh, repeated festivals, the new moon every month and the Sabbath every uh, seventh day were all observances of the Mosaic law. Here's the problem, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't let anybody tell you you're not complete in Christ and point you to these things that were pointing to Jesus. It's insanity. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now at one time in God's salvation plan, there was a place for the observance of these special days, for instance. But the ritual system that God prescribed to Israel was designed to point forward to the Messiah. Now that Messiah has come, what is the point of Passover? Christ is is our Passover lamb. He's the substance to which the festival was always pointing. What is the point of food regulations to help believers remember and be conscious of holiness? Christ has purified our souls. What is the point of Sabbath observance in the new creation? Christ is our Sabbath rest. So Paul is saying if you turn back to these rituals of the law, you embrace the shadow of Christ's body. The shadow His body made on the canvas of salvation history. It makes no sense at all. We might picture it a bit differently. There's a soldier in battle. And there's a lull in the battle. He's not sure if he's going to make it or not. And he's exhausted. And he takes a moment of rest and reaches down into his pocket and pulls out what? A picture of his family. And there, hoping someday to see them, hoping to exist through this battle, he touches their faces and he calls them by name and then puts the picture back in his pocket as the battle begins to rage once again. Now that soldier survives the battle and he gets back home and there he sees across the tarmac as his plane has landed, his family running to him. 
I want to ask you, how much is he thinking about the picture in his pocket? That was a valuable, valuable picture. He'll keep it the rest of his life. It will remind him of his days as a soldier, but his wife, his children are right there in front of them, in front of him. He embraces them. This is the substance. The picture, in a sense, was the shadow. We could add to this also a timing idea that it was looking forward or foreshadowing what was to come. Do not let anyone take you aside and tell you you don't measure up, Paul says. Don't let them bring you back to the shadows on the canvas. You have Christ. In Him, you are complete. All the treasures of wisdom, all power, all beauty, all the fullness of all that God is, is in Jesus Christ in bodily form. You have all. So verse 18, let no one disqualify you. That might come across as that's the result of what happens if you let somebody judge you. But really, I think the word disqualify here is just repeating what he said. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let them say you don't measure up right now. Don't let them pass judgment. The false teachers were telling the Colossians they did not measure up because they had, here it is, merely trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. They had merely done that. That's all. They needed more. He said, don't let anybody say that to you. There's much more to the Christian life than trusting the Gospel and knowing Christ. Let us teach you the ways in which you fall short. Here's how you fall short. Insisting on asceticism, they were. The Greek is difficult to translate. Delighting in humility or wishing for humility, but it seems to point to the humiliation of setting aside food and drink, perhaps even sleep, to draw closer to God. And in the context of that day, this was often done in order to prepare oneself for a revelation. Deny yourself enough food, deny yourself enough sleep, and you'll see something. It'll come. It'll come to visit you. You'll see weird things. And that's what they would do. And then they would quote these revelations. They were also pointing them, you note there in verse 18, to the worship of angels. No idea why, but probably an appeal for protection and success. Perhaps a false humility that refused to pray directly to God. We'll really honor God. We won't really bother Him with our prayers. We'll, we'll talk to the angels. Something along these lines. Whatever it was, they were, they were being pointed away from their identity in Christ. Going on in detail about vision, depending on the translation you have, this is variously translated a debated phrase, but probably some idea of receiving a vision and talking about those visions all the time. One commentator says the false teachers are hung up on the visions that they have been receiving, relating them endlessly to, a nut, to anyone who would listen and perhaps bragging about them as well. That's not much of a new day, is it? There's books everywhere. There's movies like this. There are talk shows this way. These revelations that we've seen, this trip to heaven we've taken, and now you'll know the faith is real. Now will point you to a greater way. And all of this, he says there at the end of verse 18, they are puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind. Those who teach religious development that is not rooted in Christ are not driven by the truth. They're driven by pride. 
and their minds are fueled by the flesh. But even more tragically, and here's the key, verse 19, to this tragedy, this, to this tragedy, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The head is whom? The head is Christ, Jesus. In my Bible, it just happens to be right across the column. You see the head in chapter 2 and verse 10. Been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. 2.19, not holding fast to the head. We have the parallel as well in Ephesians that makes this very clear. This is Jesus Christ. Verse 19 is not an anatomy lesson. It's a figure of speech, a figure of speech that made perfect sense in their world that was often used. The head was the source of authority. It was often the source of life. It was the sustaining, strengthening element that would feed the rest of the body. And this was used in varying analogies. But our identity as individuals and as a church and our spiritual power is wired to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It should be clear in this place that He is the head. That He is the authority. That He is the source in everything that we do in how we think and how we see our lives. Not me and not us, but Christ is the head. We, vitally connected to Him, nourished in our connection to Him, bound together as Christ's people through the power of the Lord. But they're not holding fast to the head. They're, in a sense, severing themselves from it. They're like an arm that's being cut off and severed from the root which is Christ. And the danger of this is that at the end of verse 19 is it, it grows with a growth that is from God. You sever yourself from the head and your growth will not be from God. You'll die. You'll be separated from Him. Our growth, Christian, comes from Him. It comes from knowing Him, relating to Him, reveling in Him, seeing Him for who He is and recognizing that He is the head. Now let's bring it to today. There's, there's, there's much application here. I, I don't know if we could find a cult that operated just like these false teachers are uh, teaching and that Paul is revealing here, but we have this situation going on everywhere. We have it going on this morning. As people gather in churches where they pursue works salvation, any religious system that teaches adherence to get good by doing good, to do good works in order to gain acceptance with God, that religion is off track and it is severing people from the head who is Jesus Christ. In some of these Christian churches, there seem to be multiple heads, multiple saviors, a co-redemptrix. In others following Christ, there is simply a following also of works. To do good, to fit yourself, to be prepared to enter into the presence of Christ someday by the good that you do. There's Christian churches everywhere that proclaim this and some not even recognizing it. Watch out. Watch out. Or secondly, the phenomenological religion. 
It's everywhere as well. This is where everything is about a mystical experience, perhaps even a miraculous experience. That's what the whole attention is about. It's about casting things out and healing things and bringing things to life and the miracles that God is pouring out upon His people. This is what it's all about. It steers attention away from what Scripture says and it steers attention away from the significance of our union with Jesus Christ through faith in the Gospel. It's all about the next exciting thing. What people are often doing in these systems is disparaging our standing in Christ. Now They would never say that. Maybe not even ever recognize it. But what they're saying is it's all about the amazing experience. And they do very, very little teaching on who Christ is and who we are in Him. One religious high after another even sometimes claiming direct revelation, as seems to be the case here. So what does it mean to hold fast to the head? It means to say this, my very identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. I am a new creation in Jesus, dead to sin, alive to God, in Him who is the fullness of God, I've been united And any spiritual development plan that focuses away from my identity in Christ is subtraction by addition. And I realize there are those who would look at a conservative Christian as I am, a Bible-believing Christian, and say, well, you just have a, you're just looking at one trail, one track, this emphasis on union with Christ. I don't think that that's one track. I think that's the whole thing. All the fullness dwells in Him. There is no other story. There is no other way. It is in Christ alone. I am complete in Him, we sang today. Do you really believe it? I grew up in the area where Dan Marino went to high school. I played against the high school, not in football. But if you don't know who that is, a great football player. But because I lived there, there's a reason... We heard this story often uh, about the football coach at the high school where he played. And the coach told him something that probably no coach has ever told another high school player. He would tell him, don't let anyone mess with your mechanics. That is, don't let anyone get you aside and teach you to throw the ball differently than you're throwing it right now. That's amazing to say to a high school player because that's saying he had it all figured out right there. And he knew if another coach came along and tried to change it, he'd ruin it. Well, the coach proved prophetic. Many, many NFL records are held by Dan Marino as a quarterback. Now, what I'm not saying by way of illustration is that there is something good in us. We don't have this skill as a Christian. It's not that. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is if we can just sense that, if you mess with something that's right, you destroy it. So it is when we look at our identity in Christ and we begin to mess with the equation, we destroy it. We begin to be severed from the head 
We begin to follow new ideas, new ways, new teachings, but we don't come back to what is the fullness of God in which we've been enveloped through faith in Christ. We're complete in Him. Add a ritualistic system. Add concentration on phenomenal displays and its loss. Don't let anyone pass judgment on who you are in Christ. Don't let anyone add. Don't let anyone mess with your identity. So, that's point one. Point two, verse 20, is recognize the folly then of reaching outside your identity with Christ to grow in holiness. Don't let them say that. Here's the danger then. Don't reach outside of your identity with Christ to grow in holiness. I think that's the essence of this next paragraph. Verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What regulations? Such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do you remember the discussion on elemental spirits? It's really complicated. It could be elemental principles. It could just be elements. And there's lots of debate as to what's there. But just moving beyond the struggle of figuring out what that means, the basic point is that we die to our identity as enslaved members of a corrupt world. We died to that identity as we came to know Christ as Savior. If this is the case for true believers, then why would we tap this world's ways and follow man-made means of approaching God? Why would we get back for them at least in touch with the ways in which people worshipped from a pagan standpoint or even from those who held to the rituals of the Jewish faith not seeing the substance in Christ? Why would we do that? These rules such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. The historical context is unclear, and I doubt that Paul is really being overly specific here. He's probably being a bit sarcastic. Don't touch anything, don't handle anything, don't taste anything. These things are not going to draw you closer to God. They're arbitrary religious rituals intended to prove one worthy of God by denying normal pleasures such as food and drink. Now let me caution here. Fasting, for instance, has a place in the Christian's life. It can be used appropriately to draw near to God, but not as a means of gaining status with God. So what are we to do, said Jesus, if we're fasting? He didn't say quit fasting, but if you're fasting, wash, clean up, look good. Don't do it in front of people. Do it privately to your Father who sees a heart that is humbled before Him. And don't even think of doing it to gain favor with God. As if somehow my setting food aside is going to fit me and qualify me to walk in fellowship with God. The one who qualifies me to walk in fellowship with God is Jesus Christ. Stupid to set aside food and think I'm going to get that done. But... Perhaps wise to set aside food at times in order to humble myself privately before God. You see the connection. So back to the opening illustration. There are certain protocols of addressing the king that the people are studying under the tree. It's not that those protocols are necessarily wrong. 
but they're unhelpful. They're unuseful for this son or daughter who's approaching the gate. In fact, they can be destructive. So it is with fasting, for instance. Verse 22, he says, of these rules, referring to things that all perish as they are used. Which things? The regulations of verse 21. The things denied have no lasting significance as they will simply pass away with their use. They're not going to fit you before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And they are, and here's the significant point, they are according to human precepts and teachings, verse 22. They find their origin in man, not in God. And so, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. These, that is these man-made religious rules, this new way of doing it, this way we're teaching you, you've got to do it, disparaging your standing in Christ, adding these religious rules, they're just man-made. But as he brings out here in verse 23, they look smart, they show initiative, they show discipline, control of the body, and so they seem the ideal path forward to holiness. How could all of this be wrong? How could all of this not bring me closer to God? Well, what does he say at the end? Which is really, it seems to be as the, as the verse is uh, worked out in the original, the, the essence of the point at the end of the verse is they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Our sinful desires will not be curbed by punishing the body. How in this culture does that need to be said? Who punishes the body in order to draw closer to God? Perhaps it would be better to see a few more try it. We are in an indulgent society. It's never crossed our mind to punish ourselves to walk closer to God, probably for many, but for some it has. And there are some religious systems where it's entrenched. You do things to suffer in the physical body in order to curb the cravings of sin. Paul says it's going to do nothing. Are you struggling with sin? You will not grow in holiness by torturing your body or starving your stomach. Are you struggling with sin? Is there an area of sin that is pulling you down? That is eating you up? That where the struggle is constant and you're, you're tired of it? The way forward is not to punish yourself by fasting. The way forward is not to deny yourself sleep. The way forward is not to pray so many Hail Marys. It's going to get you nowhere. The outcome, says Paul, of such an approach is pride. And there is zero progress against actual sin. You might make progress, but that will only lead to more self-dependence because it's not real. The answer is to grow in your knowledge of who you are in Christ and growing in your sense of wonder and delight in that new reality. The way forward may well involve the establishment of certain disciplines in your life. It might involve putting controls on the computer. 
It might involve not buying what tempts you to sin. It might involve setting aside time to read in order to come to know Christ better. It may involve the discipline of fasting. Don't throw all of that out to say there's no place for it because of what Paul is saying here. It might involve these things, but the answer is not religious sacrifice in order to earn favor with God. The answer is seeing who you are in Christ. Chosen, forgiven, purified, reconciled to God, an heir of heaven. A story that will go on for eternity as we learn it. I think of people who say, well, it takes me about a minute to think through those things of what salvation is and who Christ is and what He's done. And after the minute that I've considered those things, let me, let's move on to something else. I'm having trouble with sin here. We will spend eternity coming to know the significance of what Christ has done in His death and resurrection and who we are in Him. You can't know enough. You can't love enough. You can't discern enough. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. Don't be so foolish as to say, I already know that. It's not helping me. It will bring you to God. Little by little, year by year, slowly, this is where the answer is lodged. Know Christ we live in a different day than what is being described here, and we sense that, but the danger of false prophets, false teachers persists. And what is the danger for every one of us is we can take the outlet of our faith and we can plug it into a, or the plug of our faith and we can plug it into a dead outlet. The live outlet is Christ. Continue to plug in there and the power will be there. And so we need to detect the dead outlets. They look good. They make sense. You even feel good about yourself if you pursue them or listen to them and the people come across as being very, very wise and smart and having a good idea here. What are we looking for? Watch out for those teachers that stress novelty and phenomenal experience. I went to heaven. I received a revelation. I have the key. And they never say it quite this way, but that's kind of the, what they're given across. Is nobody's figured it out till now. And for 1995, you know, it's uh, all yours. Nobody's ever figured it out. You've got the key. You know how Christians are to live in righteousness and grow in holiness now all of a sudden. Watch out for that. A new word from God. Or answers that are rooted in self, such as teaching you how to grow in self-esteem or to address your needs or to read your world psychologically. And if we can just teach you how to read the world this way, then you'll grow. Then there will be victory. Watch out for that. Here's the key. Any teacher that we connect with, any source of information, any growth in Christ or growth as a Christian that we might experience, ask this question Am I being taught more accurately and biblically the beauty and delight of who Jesus is? 
Are they teaching me? Is this teacher teaching me? Is this curriculum teaching me how my relationship in Christ transforms me? How Christ is all-sufficient. How my relationship with Him is everything. This is what, again, going back maybe a couple of weeks ago, to what we see in Paul on marriage. Are there a few troubled marriages in this world? Yeah, a lot of them. It's a troubling relationship because it brings two sinners together, and there's problems, and we look for answers, and we want to know how do we fix this broken thing. Where does Paul go? Where does he run in his counsel? Not to the psychological, not to the new revelation, not to ritual obedience. What he runs to is this, the death and resurrection of Jesus applied to your marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. You are a reflection, a display, an image of the relationship of Christ in His church. Now, I say that we know this teaching. Well, let me add the other, too, singleness. Is it a challenge? Absolutely. Where does Paul go? 1 Corinthians 7. It is all tied up in one's identity in Christ. So I say this to say that as we look at the Bible itself, as we look at the biblical writers, they are drawing for the trials of life from the death and resurrection of Christ and its implications upon us. This is where they go. This is where they put their roots. And so the teachers that gain attention are those often that are saying new things, gaining new ideas, new insights. This will fix it all. And what they're doing is severing us from the head. They're pulling us away from who Christ is and the answer that is in Him. So, in a couple of months, we gather uniquely for a Bible conference, and the theme of that conference is the triune God. And I'm getting excited already to think of how we as a church are going to feed on the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit in their relationships and what are the implications to our life. That is solid Christian teaching. And there will be some new ideas and there will be some things we remember that we forgot and there will be some things that are very, very obvious to us but we just keep feeding on who God is. That's true teaching. That's what's going to help us to grow. That's not the kind of teaching that has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They talk about how to identify such false teachers. We must also talk perhaps about where to locate them. And we are facing a very difficult time because of media. They're on the TV they're on the airwaves, and their images go everywhere. They're on the internet. These religious experts who have this novel idea that nobody's really seen before, and this will really turn your life around, and you get it all fixed. In fact, so many of them, so you, get, you get lots of money and health, and everything will be all fixed up for you. It's where so much of it is. There was a time... 
some time ago when such thinkers used to write a paper and they'd try to get other people to see the paper, read the paper, and think that it actually had some worth. And most pastors, most uh, seminary professors that love the Bible and love Christ would do precisely with those papers what they should. They slam dunk them in a wastebasket, and that was the end of it. They would, in a sense, pull the infected nerve and trash it. But today, those preachers are on YouTube. Those preachers are on television. Those preachers are out there saying things that nobody can filter. No one who knows what they're doing. Here's the key in this. There is apostolic authority. There is the authority that God has revealed in the New Testament documents that stands as an objective revelation of truth. And it is sufficient. That objective revelation of truth is combined in Christ's design with pastoral oversight in an environment of member accountability. Now, Americans jump up right away and go, oh, there's control. That's not control. It can be. That's not control. Pastors observing what you're believing and what you're hearing and what you're listening to, that's called love. If you are discovering Christian teaching that is different from anything that you are hearing at church, you're likely drinking from a bad fountain. The test is the apostolic doctrine revealed in the New Testament. And the filter that will help are the pastors of the church who can filter and think through teaching and say, that's legit. That's good stuff. I might differ with the guy here. I might differ with this particular emphasis. But this is solid stuff. This is doing what? What's the objective point? This is bringing you back to see who Christ is and who you are in Him. We can see those roots. We can commend those roots, and we will. This is not a church where we say, don't listen to anybody outside this church. That's bad news right away. But if the pastors do not approve, you're a fool to dismiss what they're saying. They may be wrong. They're not perfect. We're not perfect or flawless. We don't know everything, but we do love you. And we live to see Jesus Christ magnified in you. So let's work together on it. And I speak not to any individual here. I speak as a cultural problem that churches are facing everywhere. But let's work together on this and to say, let's have an open conversation about any truth that seems novel or new or any teachers that come away that seem to be collecting groups of Christians. Let's ask the question, are they disparaging our standing in Christ? Are they severing us from the head by getting us into all kinds of added ideas and let's work together on that as we come to understand the truth together.
it's fitting then that we come now to the Lord's Supper. Thinking on marital trouble as an illustration, if somebody had said to you today, your marriage, let's say, somebody that's really struggling with marital trouble, we have a seminar. And if you'll go to this seminar, you will learn the key to marital bliss. It's guaranteed. There's some new ideas here. There's just a new way of putting it. There's some concepts that you've got to grasp. If you'll just go to this seminar, your marriage will be fixed today. Just skip church this once. It'll be worth it. I would suggest to you that coming before this table will be far more profitable. Far more profitable. There's no teacher out there that's going to give you any novel idea that's going to fix the world. But coming here and saying, I identify with Jesus Christ crucified and risen is healing for every sin in your life. It's hope for everything with which we struggle. Working out our salvation in light of what Christ has done, this is the answer. And this table brings us to that consideration in a unique way. This is my identity. The gospel is my salvation. And I aim my life and root my life in it. This is what Charles Wesley's doing in the great hymn, Arise, My Soul Arise. Listen as he counsels himself out of guilt out of fear. He says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on His hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede, His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead, His blood atoned for every race, and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears, hands, feet, side. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me as his child. I can no longer fear. That's where he starts the poem. Shake off your guilty fears. As he comes to the end of the poem, I can no longer fear in light of these truths. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. At this table, we come and say, He is my Father. 
we come and say that I have no other plea but Christ crucified and risen. We come here and find the answer to all of our sin. Though we fall short, though we continue to struggle through the days of this life, we find in Christ alone our salvation. And so it's here that our soul is deepened and rooted. It is here that we find rejoicing in Christ. It is here that we commune with Him and commune as the body of Christ. Lord, aid us, I pray, to that end as we come now before this table. And may we here do the hard spiritual labor of seeing our sin for what it is, of seeing Christ for who He is and His salvation for what it has accomplished. And may we root in here today in our identity in Christ as a congregation. Through His name we pray. Amen. We now approach the Lord's table together as just a continuing on of our celebrating this union of Christ that we have just heard about. We recognize that last week many of us were able to observe and to rejoice in the ordinance of baptism, to watch many uh, unite themselves in a symbolic way, in a one-time way, that every Christian is called to in the Lordship of Christ to, to follow. And so we rejoice together in that, and, and flowing naturally out of that is the ongoing ordinance of the Lord's table, that those who have, who have publicly identified with him as being disciples of Jesus Christ would then partake of a meal regularly and often that remind themselves of how united they are with Christ, that the Lord's table would be something that causes us to look back and to never forget the significance of our Savior's death and of his resurrection. It's also something that causes us to look at the present. For the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth that everyone who takes of the bread and of the wine would examine themselves. So it's a wonderful privilege that we get to look into the significance of our Savior's death and say, am I living in the good of this? Am I living in the reality of all that I might proclaim? And then it also tells us that, that this, isn't, this isn't the reality. This is that, uh, the analogy that was just mentioned, that, that card, that picture that that man at war might have looking at his family. That this is just a, a symbol of a greater, a greater feast that all of us who celebrate union with Christ will one day know as we drink and feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this, this is a, a small ritual, you might say, something we, we, we do regularly, but it is powerfully symbolic in, in what it pictures of our union with Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you, if, if union with Christ, if, if faith and repentance, a turning from a life separated from God, is, if, if this isn't something that you know this morning and you find yourself as a guest or somebody who's just inquisitive into the things of Christianity, do not feel embarrassed by just letting these plates pass you by. We encourage you to just, just observe and to think about what you see. Maybe even ask questions later about it. And for those of us who are united uh, with Christ, we invite you all. Perhaps you're not a member of this church, but we invite you as well to this table if you have publicly identified with Christ through baptism and if you have repented of your sins and trust in the gospel. We invite you as well to this feast. So as the men come and we distribute the elements, on the screen will be the prophet Isaiah's words describing 
our Savior's death that would come many, many years later. So I will read that after the elements begin to be distributed, and I'd encourage you to meditate. Make this your meditation as we think upon our Lord's death. Beginning in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 